Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books that they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. We recently reviewed Yellow Medicine and Hogdoggin by Anthony Neal Smith. And for this episode, we have a very special treat. The doc himself, Anthony Neal Smith, has agreed to join us via Skype um, to talk shop here. Anthony Neal Smith is the author of Yellow Medicine and Hogdoggin, which we've recently reviewed. And he's also the author of Psychosomatic, The Drummer, The E-Original Choke on Your Lies, and is co-author of To the Devil, My Regards. He's also the publisher for the noir e-zine, Plots with Guns. Welcome to the show, Neil. Glad to be invited. Thanks, guys. Well, thank you for taking the time out to talk to us today. I'm, I'm glad to, especially after you've kissed my ass so much on these books. So, you know, <laughs> it's, 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 what, I... it's what we do. It's how we lure authors onto our show. <laughs> All right, so we've, we've gushed about Yellow Medicine and Hogdoggin, and we've read the synopsises for the listeners, and we've given our own take on what it's about. How about telling us kind of in your own words what those books are about? Well, uh, I set out to write with Yellow Medicine a book about a bad cop who was a guy who was very charismatic, even though he was not sympathetic. Because one of the things that nailed me in trying to find a large publisher for my books, because they've all been small press books, was that they said the, the characters were not sympathetic enough. So... In writing Billy Lafitte, and after watching a lot of The Shield, which is one of my favorite (laughs) television shows, my thing about Big Mackey was, even though he was a bad guy, he still had, um, you know, these these reasons he was doing what he was doing to help his family and to help his wife and his kids. And with Yellow Medicine, I kind of wanted to kick that loose and said, what if he just lost that? And the guy was just bad. He just didn't know how to be good. And if you sat and talked with him in a bar, you'd love him because he'd tell you these outrageous stories. And then at the end of the night, he would ask you for a ride home and it would chill your blood. And so that's what I wanted was how do you keep someone um, magnetized to this character and at the same time afraid of this character? And that happened, I think, very well in Yellow Medicine. I think I, I got that across and I let him tell his own story. With Hogdoggin, Due to some people that uh, who who thought uh, Agent Rome was really evil and deserved to die in Yellow Medicine, uh, I I started to get the idea that I needed to flesh him out, and I wanted an epic tale between those two guys uh, because in the in writing Yellow Medicine, I didn't really realize until it got there that uh, Rome was going to be this big character. Um, I, I, he grew. I just didn't really realize how big of a character he was going to be. And my first reader said, Billy should have killed him. Of course he should have killed him. What a nasty guy. And I said, he's just doing his job. He's just doing his job. He's out to catch bad guys. So in the second book, it just originally was going to be um, Billy's point of view and Rome's point of view to show that he was, you know, a human. That he was, he had feelings and he had a family and he had love and and um, things he liked and things he didn't like. So in, uh, in building that book, that was the point. And then the happy surprise that made it all worthwhile was all these other characters demanded to be heard. And Colleen, who I just love, and, and Hogdog, and, and um, you know, Rome's wife, and um, Desiree, and um, all these other characters just leapt up and demanded to be heard. And that's why this book is one of the most rewarding writing experiences I ever had. Is there with where you just mentioned kind of the, the perspective shift from book to book, is there one form over another that you preferred kind of where in yellow medicine, you stayed pretty tight to, to Billy Lafitte and then expanded on these stories. Is there one form that you prefer, prefer over another or which do you find more challenging to write? A uh, third person is both more challenging and preferable because I think that it allows me to give either a distance that I want or a um, closeness that I want, which uh, something in the in the book I it said James Wood um, wrote a book about fiction, how writing works or how fiction works. That's it. I'm sorry, uh, how fiction works, and he talks about third person being this really natural state where we can either kind of drift into the thoughts of characters or see them from outside. And that just seems to me to be a really great way to get a lot of voice into the story. First person is easy sometimes. If you know the voice, 
if you know that that voice can be unique enough, then then great. But I just prefer the third person. And with the current Lafitte book I'm working on now, I do even further. I don't even think um, Billy has gotten a point of view so far. And I've decided not to give him a point of view because I want to show in the next book just how other people see him. All right. And um, one thing that I was curious about was another part of the inspiration for the stories. <laughs> I think Olivia's even maybe mentioned it in, uh, I think, in the Yellow Medicine one was the whole New Orleans and Minnesota setting. And I was wondering how much of that, uh, if any of it, was uh, from your own personal experiences or if it was just uh, a coincidence or just a choice you made. Ah. There, you know, there's a theme that runs through all the books, and this is kind of um, something you notice only a little too late. But it, there's this sort of running away from your life and starting over somewhere else that happens in Drummer, happens in Yellow Medicine, happens again in Hog Dog, and um, it's um, something I guess that goes with the territory. I I work as I'm as a professor of English, and I'm director of creative writing here in Minnesota, but in order to get a job like that, you have to be willing to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. You can't just say, I'm going to stay in one part of the country. Uh, I you know, went to school in uh, Southern Miss in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and I had to throw my CV all over the country and ended up for a few years in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which I really loved, and then had to find a tenure track job, so I found it here in uh, Marshall, Minnesota. And um, I guess the part of that is you get here, you're jazzed about the job, you're jazzed that someone wanted you and is actually going to pay you to do this shit, um, you know, professionally. Um, and yet there's like 12,000 people in this town, but it feels smaller. <laughs> it's surrounded by cornfields and every winter uh, it's just constant ice and wind. It's just really nasty. And my first semester here, I was kind of lonely and really there were a couple of things that happened. I was working on another book at the time, but then my friend Victor Gishler came to visit and we're driving uh, you know, back and forth from where I was staying at the time and Marshall. And uh, the city I lived in was in Yellow Medicine County. And mm-hmm. we saw this sign and he just said, that's just a great name. Yellow Medicine is just a fantastic name for a book. And and you should do that. And so I, I, I said, all right, I, I, I'll file it away. And as the months went on, and my anger at, at Minnesota grew at both the people and the uh, and the and the setting, the atmosphere, um, I, I just channeled that all into a character who could do something about it, namely Billy Lafitte, because I can't. You know, I couldn't go wave a gun around or kick gynecologists <laughs> uh, to the side of the road. Um you know, or or uh, the only way I can uh, torture college students is through grades. You know, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I channeled a lot of the idea of coming originally being a southerner from around the New Orleans area, uh, Mississippi coast. Um, that went into this guy who was alone in Minnesota, and he didn't like the weather, and he and he didn't know how to to interact with the people, and so for that period of my life. Um, it was a lot of anger, and I think that that shows through in Billy. I can kind of identify with that, actually. Uh, <laughs> for the last two years, I've been living in a very small town in Vermont, having moved from Chicago. So if you ever want oh. a, ch- <laughs> a change of venue from uh, for, for Billy, I can give you a lot of information about small Vermont towns. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you still have syrup, at least. I mean, I don't even have syrup. <laughs> yeah, and good cheese. There's a lot of dairy farms around here cheese yeah i I, I can deal with cheese all right i kind of backed myself into a corner when i was actually listening to the posted review um, this morning because i wasn't thinking about it when i said it so okay here it is hey smith why didn't we get more steel god and hog doggin you know it's something you don't think about when you're writing the book you just write what you think you need for the story and um steel god as wonderful as he is, and I agree, I think played his part in that particular story um, very well. You know, even all the way up till the end, where I'm not going to tell anybody. You know, people who haven't read it, what happens, but he played his part well. He did what he needed to do. Um, and you know, just from page one, I think if, if I, I 
I hadn't started the book the way I started it with Steel God, then I don't think that the rest of the book would have had the weight and the sort of attitude and feel that it had. This guy, you know, just came out of nowhere. I originally started with Billy on a motorcycle uh, riding back to Minnesota. That didn't work. Um, I thought about doing a couple of other things that didn't work. And then suddenly I just had this image in my head of this giant biker god um, killing a guy by crushing his throat with a sledgehammer. So, you know, that felt like <laughs> the perfect way to um, to open this. I did actually like Steel God so much that I wanted to do kind of comic book style an origin story. And I started writing it. Um, and then the same reason that the third Billy Lafitte got kind of put to the side for a while was that the uh, was that the publishing company um, kind of stopped publishing. <laughs> it's a little bit of a drawback, yeah. <laughs> they don't exactly, they've never actually said that they've shut down Bleak House books, but my book, I think Hogdoggin, was the last book published before the two people who started Bleak House jumped ship and started another company. And in all that, you know, I, I think the book got a little lost, and, um, and I'm glad to be able to get it back out there again. But I, they were very supportive of the book, and I'm, I'm very happy that they put it out, so I'm not going to, you know, cast too much blame. But that meant my Steel God prequel kind of got put aside. And, you know, one day, one day I'll get back to it, and I think it's actually going to be kind of surprising. I don't think it's going to be what you expect, but it is his story. Um, do you want to tell us a little more about where you're at in the Billy Lafitte saga? Uh, well, again, I, I, I purposely <laughs> made the, the endings of the book um, maddening because you can't, you know, you can't say anything without giving away if Billy Lafitte is dead or not. But just by saying there's a third Billy Lafitte, well, he's not a corpse in it, you know, you know that. Even though I should try that, <laughs> just try the corpse for the entire. You know, zombie zombie fiction is selling well still. So, yeah, I can't do zombie fiction. I would just they would they would end up fucking. That's all. The, the <laughs> zombies would just fuck each other in awful ways, and <laughs> nobody would read them. But um, I, there is a third book. It is underway. Um, Billy is in a tight spot and has to find his way out of it it's a tough book to write because i kind of painted myself in a corner too yeah. that's I something said, we talked about right before this i said what i had a question about the ending of the book and i said i can't really do it because i don't want to spoil it for anybody but yeah that's that is a tight spot to get out of yeah it is and i and i you know realized what sort of book it had to be as i kind of think a lot of people have you know what sort of book it had to be but in order for it to be that sort of book um you've you've set some big obstacles in your way, you know, so I've set these obstacles in my way. And now the, the challenge of writing the book is how do I get out of it? Uh, or will I get out of it? I mean, my intention, I would love for Lafitte to live on in other novels, but will I be able to do it with the story that I've uh, started? I don't know yet. So. Oh, I see. thought we talked about that already. He's moving to Vermont. That's right. There you go. <laughs> He's going to run for Congress in Vermont. There you go. Octavia Vanderplatz is arguably your most memorable character, and she's very larger than life. Um, do you think we'll be seeing more of her? I hope so, but I have to sell a thousand more books. Right. I, I set up this uh, ridiculous uh, number. I said, you know, if you want me to write a sequel, um, I need to sell 1,500 copies of uh, the first one, Choke on Your Lies in order to even think about writing the sequel. And um, a lot of people have said, oh, that's kind of crazy. And it's like, you know what? If this were a regular print book, that would be nothing. I mean, that's really a low number for, for print. But I can say that I've sold now just over 500 copies of Choke on Your Lies. So if I can get 1,000 more people, I've already got a second book planned. I'm just waiting to see if there are enough people who would be interested in buying it. And Octavia is a really um, another one of these characters that, you know, not a lot of sympathy sometimes, but at the same time, you can't tear yourself away from her. She's just, you know, that charismatic. So I really hope to do more with her. Um, being the choke on your lies was an original, as you just mentioned. Can you compare that kind of to the traditional publishing process from your view? Uh, 
I was just actually writing about that today because I had to turn in a report. I'm on sabbatical, or I was this spring, from my jobs, which allowed me to do more writing and publishing. This I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because we thought your job involved just tweeting all day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for January through May, it did. I don't know. Um, I I um, it was on sabbatical because last semester I put together a, a writing festival, a literary festival on campus. And that wiped me out. So I had planned to take this semester off and I did. And that allowed me to do all this publishing. Um, I had to be dragged kicking and screaming to e-publishing. And which is stupid because now that I have, it's like, you know, one of the best things ever. It's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like being dragged kicking and screaming to a blowjob. You know, it's <laughs> like, a, oh, my God, no, no, no. Wait, wait, this is good. Hey, hold on. You know, so um, it was just. I, I, I was one of these people who said, I don't know about ebooks. Uh, I don't think I would like reading on one. I like actual paperbacks better than I like e-readers. Um, but then again, nobody's buying the books that I had slaved over because they're kind of, you know, a couple years old and falling out of favor and in a warehouse. So um, with Choke on Your Lies, my agent and I sent it out. We knew it was kind of a hard sell because, you know, any book that shows a very sexually aggressive, uh, mean, fat woman and, you know, sort of the sort of sexual content that we had in the book um, is, is sort of a tough sell because you have to sort of, you know, play it soft and velvety and, you know, the soft filter lens. You can't kind of have it the way, the way uh, I did in that book. So my agent who had been selling uh, his own novellas online, uh, Alan Guthrie, he's a great writer and um, also an agent, he was selling by January in the thousands, thousand a month for <laughs> his uh, novellas. And he said, you know, this is a great opportunity. I think it's something that you really need to try. I was very lucky. I got all of the e-rights back to my print novels. A lot of authors who are on with bigger publishers, those are tied up forever and they're getting screwed on e-rights. Um, but I was lucky enough to get the print rights, uh, the e-rights back. I put them all on um, online myself and then said, how about Choke on Your Lies? Do we want to send it out to more publishers, to smaller publishers than, than we've already sent it? Or should I just try it online? And he gave his blessing and said, let's try it. Let's go. Let's let's see we can uh, what we can do online. And I agreed. I mean, he edited it. My, my agent is an editor. So it's not like I just threw slop online. I mean, this was an edited, ready for the major publisher, ready for market book. And so tried it. And within the first month, I sold 171. And I said, wait, I've got something here. And then uh, since then, um, we've just been piling on every month, more sales. So I found that I'm reaching readers. I'm making new friends. I met you guys through the e-publishing um sort of experiment here um it's it's really surprised me and made me a convert for life especially when i saw that somebody like lee goldberg who had been as skeptical as i was about e-publishing began to fully embrace it that led me um led me to believe that there's probably um a future in this, it will be the future, and I better grab on now. And that if you're not, you're kind of being left behind. So that's yeah. where I'm at with that. I've always said, and you know, I was one of the readers who was skeptical of going from paper to e ink. And um, so I tell everybody, all you got to do is get through one, get through one book, and it will change your mind about what <laughs> reading is. I used to lug around three or four books in my bag with me because I didn't know what I wanted to read next. And you yeah. know, and now oh, the entire there's this library at your fingertips. There's no going out and hunting for a book or waiting in line at the library. You know, you spend a couple bucks and it's delivered to your home in the middle of the night in rural Minnesota, wherever you are. It's just <laughs> available to everybody. If it showed up in the middle of the night, I'd be worried. You know, it's <laughs> usually around noon. When, uh, but the uh, the uh, oh the e version. I thought you meant like a real post yeah. part. Yeah. Um, yeah, the Kindle thing. I've got nine pages of books on this thing now, and uh, I'm just finding more stuff every day. <laughs> Cheap stuff, too. 99 cents. I mean, 99 cents or two ninety nine for books you know, that deserve to be at a higher price, and they're finally getting readers. 
And um, I've learned also, you know, I can put my own stuff on here and short stories and documents and, and take it to readings and I don't have to shuffle papers. So it's just really been a, uh, a great um, godsend, this thing. A while ago on your blog, you mentioned that you were shopping two books around that wouldn't be under your name. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, well, one of them was actually Choke on Your Lies, which was going out under a different name. And then once that we didn't have to um, worry about that when we decided to go online, I could just put my own name on it. Uh, the other one is a thriller called All the Young Warriors that, again, we were going to put a different name on it, more of a see-through name. And it was something where people would have known it was me. Um, but so far, the editors who have seen it have... Uh, this is maddening in New York right now. The, uh, the editors are saying, this is a great book. We can't accept it. You know, <laughs> so... You've got this just maddening, why, why can't you accept great books? Yeah, that's not what we do. Um, so I had actually one editor who came very close to accepting the book, said he was interested in putting it out under my own name. So that was fine. Um, but I think now I, I can't say what the plans are because they're still a little secret. But there is a very good chance it will come out under my own name, Um Maybe later this year, maybe next year. Uh, so I'm just waiting until the moment I can actually say something about it as an ebook, uh, not a self-published book, but as actually an, uh, a book from an e-publisher. So that's where we're at with those two. It looks like I won't have to use pen names, which of course writers have to do now because of the book scan. Book scan counts books, and one of the worst possible things about you know letting the computer do this is. Authors who don't have great sales numbers don't get um, as many copies ordered by Barnes & Noble um, the next time around. And mm. so, therefore, the, uh, the way around BookScan is that an author would have to change his or her name um, to get a fresh start. And book publisher, I mean, bookstores will try to um, sell a debut much better than they would a second novel, it seems. Um, so it's 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 touchy. It's touchy that people now have to use pseudonyms, not because like Richard Stark and Donald Wesley did because he wrote four books a year and had to have different names on them to differentiate, but because um, the bottom line is the only thing that seems to matter. And that's that's a sad state of, you know, genre fiction right now. Interesting that you mentioned that Robert McCammon, who I've been a fan of for years, or at least of mostly originally from my youth of his horror fiction, had so much trouble publishing the Matthew Corbett series that became very successful because people kept um, insisting they'd love to publish another um, novel of his. He just needs to write another horror novel and not move into <laughs> historical fiction. So, but thank you for letting us, uh, giving us a little peek behind the curtain there as far as how book scan works. That's something I wasn't very familiar with. And it's kind of an interesting concept that's really got to suck for an author that. You know, you can't put your name on something you've written if you want another shot at having a successful, you know, successful novel. Well, not with the not the way things are now. Um, New York City is gun shy. They don't want to buy a lot of new stuff. They don't want to take risks, um, you know, but they will take books by Snooky. You know, that's <laughs> the problem we have is um, that midlist authors who are doing OK, who are doing relatively well with their sales and series I uh, can't get picked up because the uh, bean counters want more, more, more. They want more. And so they just can't um, keep up. So they're, they're having to go and, and take their um, backlist, fight for the rights, and then put those up on Kindle where they can have a new life. And, you know, a lot of authors are doing this now. They're actually saying, hey, uh, we have to take it into our own hands. In the past, I would have been against self-publishing. I still... Um, think you know the old school version of it was you had to pay someone to put out a print book and then there was no distribution so it was vanity publishing it wasn't really like uh, you have now with kindle where amazon says put what you put what you wrote up for free and we'll distribute it mm -hmm. that is a huge game changer and a lot of people 
are, are saying, well, there's a lot of shit out there. Well, yeah, but there's always been a lot of shit out there, and there's always been a lot of shit that's been published by big, big uh, publishers. The thing that feels different to me is that this seems like it's like like a farmer's market. You know, everybody brings their produce and sells it directly to the to the people. And, you know, if enough people know that your lettuce sucks, you're not going to sell any more lettuce. But, you know, if enough people like your apples, you're going to sell a lot of apples. So at least it gives people the chance to set up a stall. So I really um, I really like this, even though it took me a while to uh, come to terms with it. And um, so that's part of the equation, right? You've got uh, the distribution and everything, but that leaves the marketing solidly at your door. And I'm yep. guessing social media is a big player in that, but uh, people are still <clears throat> trying to really kind of find the magic, uh, you know, the secret to, to, to getting massive amounts of readers, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, there's, there are some read, uh, authors who are selling thousands and thousands of copies. And if you ask them, they say, we have no idea how we do it. We just <laughs> somehow clicks. And my agent keeps telling me at some point, you know, the more books you sell, the more you sell. And that at some point it just starts to snowball. It's just people start to, to notice it or word of mouth gets around. Social media is the new word of mouth, of course. And it's kind of funny that, um, you know, as, as authors, we have to promote ourselves. We don't have PR firms. We don't have uh, the publisher really working very hard. Or in this case, there's no publisher for me. These six books I've published online now are just me mm-hmm. putting them online and trying to uh, force people on Twitter to, to pay attention. And I've decided that <laughs> my, my uh, marketing strategy is to be a douchebag and just yell constantly, <laughs> um, which is also... What J.A. Conrad's marketing strategy is, is just a douchebag and to force, like, uh, he used to go to hundreds of bookstores and would talk to everybody and would talk to all the clerks and get to know their names and hand out stuff, all to make them order more of his books. And now, and of course, he's a douchebag in real life, but, you know, as a marketing <laughs> strategy, it actually really works. Um, and so I, admire, I admire that. So I get on Twitter. And yeah, I Twitter a lot of, you know, ridiculous kind of ironic um, um, uh, tweets trying to get people to go uh, buy these books um, or try to get people to at least tell their friends about it. I do it on Facebook. I do it on my blog. And then you'll see people who say, well, we don't like that. Don't tweet like that. Don't uh, (laughs) tweet. Don't Facebook like that. We don't like this blatant self-promotion. So much so that I think they even started banning self-promotion from Amazon forums because the people who go there to talk about and find new books don't like it when people tell them about new books. So um, it's very frustrating in that line. But then again, I'll say this to all the people who take the high and mighty road and say, oh, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't, you know, sink myself to the level of that. You know, I bet I've sold more books than you. So. <laughs> um, recently, and I don't know if you're familiar with Amanda Hocking, who's arguably the most successful self-e-published um, author ever. Um, yeah, she doesn't live far from here, actually. I think I'm going to try to invite her to, uh, to SMSU. So I go. hope she uh, she made I don't know roughly it's estimated about two million dollars from sales which is just insane for for ebooks um, but she just signed a two million dollar uh, deal a couple of months ago four book deal with a press to um, go back to traditional publishing um, and her comment on that was hey I have to do all this stuff myself and if someone's going to pay me and do a lot of the work I'm all for it um, is that the ideal path for an author to get back into having a publishing house do all of it. Uh, if you have a publishing house supporting you rather than um, some uh, some publishing houses who put out maybe a hundred books a year and then just it's the old throw it against the wall and see what sticks method no promotion you know they send it out for review um, but pretty much you're on your own uh, that's the way a lot of New York uh, publishing you know has worked uh, especially one or two particular houses if you have somebody who comes to you and says we want to put our uh, money where our mouth is and actually, um, you know, support you, then yeah, you'd be a fool not to take it. And I think she did a very smart thing. You know, she wants readers and this is going to help her reach even more readers than she's already reached. Um, And it just shows that her success in doing this showed New York 
that here's a successful writer we can um, publish. And now I guess that's going to be the new level is kind of success breeds success in the traditional um, field. The same with Barry Eisler, who turned down um, a big contract to say he was going to go self-publish and then turned around and said uh, he was going to sign with Amazon's new mystery imprint. Um, Amazon is doing incredibly smart things with publishing. They are recognizing um, the author, giving the author more say, more design um, input for covers, more artistic input, more marketing input, and a better ebook rights split because that's the future right there. Uh, so both Hawking and Eisler are, are smart, I think, in doing this. And um, I think that people can't look at self-publishing and e-publishing as a magic bullet that everybody's going to end up like those two. <laughs> but I would like other publishers to say, instead of fighting the future, hey, that's smart. Let's do what Amazon's doing. Let's be kinder to these authors. Let's figure out a way to make this work. Yeah, and to me, maybe I'm just skeptical about that, but the the way that, like you were talking about the big publishers, um, it almost seems like just picking up these people who, who have had success in publishing themselves is just like saying, you do all the heavy lifting and find out if you've got an audience, and then if you do, we'll choose to profit off of you. Uh, that's true, but, you know, I mean, they, they, they have to pay, they have to give the check out ahead of time and i guess there is a gamble because you never know uh, i've heard of people before who had promotion contracts you know promotion stuff written into their contract but once they signed none of that got done and when they tried to complain it's like who are you you know author you know so so it's always a challenge but if you write into it um you know ebook sales which are where amanda hawking is very strong um you're going to get a higher split because as far as I know right now, the what I've heard is that the contracts for a lot of the publishers in New York are 75-25 split in the publisher's favor for ebooks. Which wow. is unbelievable. Um, at least with Amazon, you know, you have a choice. You either if you if you price your book under two ninety nine, they give you thirty five percent. So, you know, for every ninety nine book I ninety nine cent book I sell, I get thirty three cents. Or if you if you uh, go over two ninety nine, um, you get a seventy percent split, just two dollars a book. But you know, try to get people you know who don't know who you are to buy your two ninety nine book. You know, good luck. So they're doing incredibly smart things, and I, I just think that um, other once other publishers start to partner with authors. Um, like they used to in the old days um, to help build an author like Amazon's doing. And like, I hope uh, whoever Hawking signed with does, cause I don't know who she signed with. Um, St. Martin's press. Oh, St. Martin's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's done. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. You know, I just, just take the money, invest it and just, you know, the books will be dropped out of a plane, you know, there you go. Well, and I, and I'm sure, and I'm sure she's, you know, she loves writing as most writers do, but I don't know. I read $2 million went into her pocket and I thought I would never, ever work again. Well, I think, you know, once you, you write, you write because you just have to tell these stories. I mean, I, I, um, I like doing what I do, you know, and I, I have a day job that lets me talk about it more often than not. But even if I, know didn't have this job i would probably still want to write just because you know i i like to do it i write noir nobody buys this shit nobody <laughs> buys it. i mean i mean noir writers who dream of getting rich are either living in 1920 or <laughs> stupid so well, I, and it's, I, I, go ahead i was just gonna say i don't uh, think that that's a uh, why we do it we do it because you know we like the object we like the final story we like the book and um that's uh, uh why we do it so i hope that she's doing you know she's doing sci-fi and fantasy and she said the reason she went with the publisher was you know she gets to write now instead of having to do all the other stuff like you'd said and i think the problem is that we never stop doing all the other stuff we 
as storytellers, we have to have an audience. And we can't depend on someone to go round them up for us. We have to find them ourselves. So I don't think she'll ever completely quit, you know, looking for the audience. Um, but to have more time to craft the stories, that's that's a wonderful luxury. Well, it's something I've always found as strange is there have been some fairly successful noirish films and it just, you know, never seemed to translate back over to, to the printed word that people aren't picking them up. I mean, Memento was a great noir movie that did very well. Um, you know, arguably Fight Club would fall into that same kind of, you know, genre movie that was super successful and it just never translated. I, you know, Polinick has a huge name in the industry, but other than that, no one has picked up any of the other noir stuff to really either promote it or to put it out there. No, noir is sort of a dangerous word because first, a lot of people don't know what it means uh, still. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I mean, there's this running joke at uh, all of the mystery conventions that at every noir panel and even at NoirCon, someone's going to ask in the audience, what is noir? How do you define noir? And my answer at the last noir con was, fuck you. I just don't <laughs> care. How, you know, you never see people, you know, say, what is ice skating? You know, who are just fans of ice skating. Why is it noir? So it's a difficult concept for people to grasp. They don't like sad endings, um, you know, except for the very uh, disturbed of us. And they don't... Um, uh, they don't really understand it as a genre as much as they do as flavor. You know, noir as hot sauce with its shadows and with its, um, uh, you know, mannerisms and, and the creepy music, that works. Noir as sort of worldview and story bothers people, I think. Uh, so you started talking a little bit more about the craft of writing and everything and one of the things I'm always interested to li- to learn about from people is uh, like their little little quirks or personal things they like to do. So, do you have any kind of ritual that you have to that you do to get into the spirit of writing, or even just uh, when you sit down to read? I have to swim eight miles every morning and kill a gator with my bare hands. <laughs> that wasn't oh. really funny. <laughs> uh, I, you know. I don't think I have any other ritual rather than I'm just, I'm a creature of habit already. I get up in the morning, I um, make coffee, I have some breakfast, I watch Good Morning America for about an hour, which is about all I can stand. <laughs> and then um, usually around, you know, eight thirty nine 9 o'clock, if I'm not teaching, then I want to start writing. I'm a morning writer. I cannot stay up really late. I'm usually in bed by 11 or midnight every night. Uh, so I'm a morning writer and I get in here, I turn on the music, uh, and I goof around on the internet and then I'll go write a paragraph and then goof around and then go write a paragraph. It just seems to roll like that. It just, uh, you know, it's this continual thing in the morning, but I don't really have a lot of other rituals. I, I do compose on computer now and people who say that's not real writing are just old farts. I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, it's the same thing as saying, well, in my day, we didn't plug up our electric, you know, our, our guitar. It was all acoustic and these new cats can't play. Fuck you. You're wrong. So <laughs> I compose on computer. Um, I edit on computer. And I think that I'm telling, you know, stories as strongly as, you know, the old timers did when they're using a quill. So, <laughs> All right. Um, of late, you've been teasing Lee Child, author of the Jack Reacher series, a bit on your. Uh, on... Who? I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. Have you have you figured out the secret formula yet? Uh, no. Um, well, first you have to understand the thing is, I mean, noir seems to be written a lot by guys who are writing for other guys. Um, you know, this is sort of the secret of heavy metal music as well. You know, it's. You know, as much as they talk about chicks, it's it's the guys who bought the albums, you know. <laughs> uh, it, and sort of noir is a boys club, except for some very, very uh, uh, talented uh, women who, who do write noir, and I appreciate very much. You know, they, they do amazing work. Uh, and it's a very smart genre, too. I think, you know, you've got to be um, kind of well-read to kind of get it anyway, no matter how grim and in the dirt and low it seems uh, it's still sort of a smart genre but Lee Child is able to write bestsellers with this loner hero that women like and the fact that women buy 
way, way more books than men. Um, that's probably the key. How do you make women like your main character? <laughs> uh, I don't know how he does it. All I know is that uh, the first time I read, um, what was the name of that book? Uh, Killing Floor by Lee Child. Halfway through it, um, there came a, you know what? I'm going to ruin it. I don't care. The guy gets off a bus <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, Georgia. He hasn't met, he doesn't know anyone there. He immediately gets into trouble with the sheriff who's like, boy, you, you don't belong here, you know, and that sort of shit. But we've seen in Rambo already. And <laughs> then he somehow gets involved in crime and explosions and all this other stuff. And then they take him to see this dead guy and they pull the sheet off. And lo and behold, it's his long lost brother. And I threw the book across the room. <laughs> now, I don't know if, you know, it, it occurred to me later, maybe he was lying about that being his brother. Maybe uh, it was a charade. Maybe it, it wasn't what it seemed. But at that moment, I couldn't stand it. And I threw it across the room. And yet I keep coming back to Lee Child books. I keep, you know, coming back and trying them again, even though that infuriated me because he sits in first class every time he flies, <laughs> which is often. So there you go. That's that's why I uh, both admire and, um, you know, make vicious fun of the guy who invented Jack Reach around. So. Right, and, and kind of uh, in going with that, we have the suggestion, and we mentioned this on our interlude podcast, I believe. We have What you do is you take choke on your lies. You call James Patterson. You tell him that for, you know, you'll take 30%, and he says he co-authored that with you, and you are a major <laughs> success because he's got a book out every month this year so far. Yeah, well, you know, he's he's been able to take other people uh, and, and do sort of similar things like, you know, Michael Ledwidge, who had really cool book out several years ago i can't remember the, the name of it it's like the narrow back i think it was and was a pure noir writer and then he disappeared after a second novel and then shows back up again writing with james patterson and i'm just kicking myself because you know i'm like that's 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 a smart move i'm sorry i don't care if the books suck that man <laughs> enjoys the day you know maybe you know uh, he's sitting around writing thrillers you know for a lot of money so if James Patterson wants it, or he wants me, or or you know, if Lee Child starts up a similar school, I'm there. You know, I'll 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 whore out for as long as I can until you know the explicit sex scene starts sneaking back in again. <laughs> when you throw down with uh, with Lee Child into a book, my money's still on Lafitte to eat Reacher up. <laughs> uh, uh, you know. At least at first, because I, I think that no matter what what you do to Reacher, you know I think I think he's Superman. I think he's you know, <laughs> invulnerable. So the sad thing is, I read the first couple of ones, and the reason I stopped was um, yeah, I read some other stuff, and I couldn't for the life of me remember which one I read last because they all kind of <laughs> read to be the exact same thing. I'm not kidding. I thought at one point I was out of things to read. I said, you know, I'll read another one of those Reacher books. And I'm looking at descriptions on Amazon going, uh, you know, I don't remember if I read three or four and I'm reading the descriptions and none of it sounds familiar. I mean, or it all sounds familiar, I should say, kind of like I couldn't figure out where I was at. So I just stopped reading. Well, I, I, kind of, uh, I realized that with this last one, he did 61 hours. He was kind of getting really close to my territory with South Dakota because I'm in the southwest corner of Minnesota, just right next to South Dakota uh, and Iowa. So he's getting into my neck of the woods. So I ended up getting that saying you know stay out you know i want to make sure you're staying put and then i never read it so it's just sitting on the and i i will say i bought it on ebay ebay so he didn't get a goddamn dime from me <laughs> you did mention earlier that you're a professor at southwest minnesota state um in the courses that you teach uh what are some of the authors or works that you you reference or talk about in your courses is there anything that that um I don't know, you think it's really important to teach? Lots of stuff comes up um, all the time. I, I guess I like to go back to some of my favorites who I think also are important for our students to learn, like Flannery O'Connor. Uh, her story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, is one of my favorite short stories, probably only supplanted by uh, Parker's Back, which is just a twisted little story she wrote. Um, but Flannery O'Connor, back when I used to be a holy roller um, <laughs> was also sort of a hero because she's writing about religion 
and marrying it to just a baser view of the world and sort of the profane. And I said, wow, I think I can do that. And I actually did that with some novels, uh, no, sorry, uh, short stories featuring Pentecostals and sort of going through some of the experiences I had been through myself. Uh, but but with uh, Good Man is Hard to Find and Parker's Back and a few of her other stories like Good Country People, you know, she's got this really dark, dark uh, humorous streak. She's also got the religion. She's got humanity at, at war. It's it's really in the dirt stuff. And that's what I really appreciate about her. As far as writing styles, I have to go back to Chekhov, who I don't really like story-wise, but he also he teaches you how to, you know, be an impressionistic writer and to, to show things rather than try to explain them. I mean, the show don't tell thing that people hear all the time is really important because it comes down to think of this as a movie in your head. You have to show it to me. And when you say don't tell, it means don't explain. Writers try to explain what they're doing rather than just showing you. You know, when you see Nick Cage in a jail cell with the, uh, with the numbers scratched on the wall and he's looking at a picture of his daughter, you don't need the caption. You know, Nick Cage is uh, <laughs> looking forward to the day when he can get out of jail to see his daughter again. You, know? you get it. You get it from what was shown. So Chekhov's good for that. And um, I try to sneak in all the crime fiction that I can, but it has to matter. It has to be a re there has to be a reason for it. So uh, when I bring in uh, Hammett and uh, and James Elroy and um, some others, I can't. I'm kind of I, I've been away from the classroom so, for so long that it's <laughs> like, what do I what how do I teach again? You know, so, um, do you teach anything that's very, just noir specific? Um, because Livius and I were talking, I think we'd do a road trip if that were the case, just to check it out. <laughs> no, um, I, you know, I was in uh, as a student. I was in workshops where they really looked down on genre, and I would still sneak stuff in that I thought was literary enough to get a pass. And at the end, my professor said, "You know, uh, this is something you do, and you do it really well. So, you know, just have at it. You know, don't." Don't you don't have to go and be literary just to please us. Just do what you do well, and that really encouraged me because I, I'd ridden the fence for a long time. I want I, I want literary principles to make genre work better. I think that the more writers who understand good literary fiction and, and why it works and good writing line by line will end up writing better genre fiction that will uh, stand the test of time. But in my teaching. It has to be broader, and I want it to be broader. You know, I just don't do anything that's just directly um, crime-related, crime fiction-related. Uh, I think I would get a little bored. I love it so much, <laughs> and yet I think making a class out of it would kind of make me a little bored. It's like, you know, piano lessons almost, you know. I love listening to good piano players. Uh, piano lessons would drive me nuts, you know. So I, I, um, I do some interesting stuff. I do like a screenplay course in the uh, every other spring so that's neat because we get to talk more about genre because that's really you know most movies are built on mm -hmm. um, three-act storytelling and genre so um, we talk a lot more about that in there and when we come when it deals with uh, um, you know crime fiction and some of the, the classes I deal with it's just to show you know this is just a content this is just a subject matter uh, you still have to have characters. You still have to have setting. Uh, and actually, you can't have plot without characters because plot is what characters want. And it just so happens in crime fiction, the things they want uh, are more intense and uh, lead to death and pain um, uh, and disappointment a lot more than in literary fiction, I think. You mentioned a screenwriting class. Is screenwriting something we can expect you to do in the future? Uh... I've done some. I, I feel better screenwriting when I'm collaborating than I do by myself. Um, I've written two scripts with Victor Gishler. One is uh, this thing we called Crescent City Smackdown that we wrote um, before Katrina. Um, it takes place in New Orleans. But it is our attempt at writing just a flat-out sellout um, comedy thriller. And the problem... <laughs> neither one of us are able to just sell out. No matter how hard we try, 
we just end up writing what we write. And so it's ridiculous. And we've had a few talks about it with producers, a few conference calls, but it's still not sold. The other thing I wrote with him was um, Pulp Boy, which is actually on the road to getting made. We're in our uh, third year with this producer who's really working at trying to find funding for it now. Um, this is a movie about the life of Victor's uh, sort of alter ego, um, Emerson LaSalle. Um, if you go to Emerson LaSalle, or if you look him up online, you can find his website, you can find more about Pulp Boy, it has its own website. But Emerson LaSalle is this hack who wrote over 400 novels, um, and they're all some sort of genre blend. Like, you know, there's a Western called Sheriff Dracula. Um, <laughs> the, there's a sci-fi thing called Prince Calamari, or Princess Calamari at the Edge of Space Time and stuff like that. Um, some of my favorite, uh, Spaceport Floozy. You know, he just wrote the awful stuff. And one of our favorite uh, lines to attribute to Emerson LaSalle um, is something in his later years when he said, technology is ruining science fiction. So <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's a, so we wrote the screenplay that's sort of about the comeback of Emerson LaSalle as he tries this one final book tour uh, to save his career. And uh, it's, it's, you know, crazy stuff. Um, I would like to do more stuff with Victor. He, he does a lot of solo crime writing, and now he writes comic books, so he's doing even more script writing. I just haven't been able to latch on to something that want that I want to write a full movie on. I get really frustrated with movies. I like television programs and television series a lot better than I like movies, and I just I'm just really picky, so that kind of impedes me when I try to write my own. Well, it seems like a lot of the big time creativity now is shifting towards TV. Like, uh, I kind of feel the same way. Like I, I get way farther into TV shows than uh, it's hard to get me excited about movies lately. It seems like they're just, um, rebooting all the same stuff over and over again. I also don't, I don't think novels fit movies. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the weirdest things to me is that you take a 300-page novel, and I'm a slow reader, so it takes me two or three weeks to read a novel. Um, so if I invest two or three weeks in a novel, I'm never going to be satisfied with the two-hour version. You know, just never. Um, and television seems to be the better place because, you know, The Shield felt like a novel. You know, it feels like it's appropriate depth is given to the characters, the arcs play out over time. It really works in favor of novel writing. Whereas I just don't understand how a two hour, you know, like, like when they rebooted Star Trek, so those, the, the editing was so fast and so cutting and they're trying to reintroduce me to these characters that I've known for so long. And it's so fast that at the end of it, I said, I didn't get any of it. That, felt like nothing compared to getting to know these characters over the course of, you know, years on a, on a television show. So it's a, it's really um, something that seems always off to me that novels don't equal movies. And yet that's what Hollywood wants. Can I jump well, with a, a quick question about the shield? Cause you mentioned it twice now. Um, and it's a show that I followed okay. from start to finish. Um, what was your feeling about the ending? Because the, I'm, I'm assuming you watched the whole series. Yes, I did. I did. So the ending, um, uh, the ending. Yeah, it struck me kind of as unexpected, and um, I was just wondering how you felt about the ending. How, if you felt that it was appropriate or if it was off. I thought it was perfect. I thought it was the best ending I've seen for a television show in years. Um, I, 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 by now, I think we've had enough time that people have seen enough, you know, to know that he, you know, confessed everything and kind of got away with it. <laughs> but um, was kind of and, and yet sorry no i'm sorry keep going oh i was gonna say he kind of got away with it and yet at the same time lost his friends lost his family and ended up being a desk jockey and just those sad moments of him just staring into space realizing what the rest of his life is going to be like and then that tiny little smile when he gets his gun and hits the streets <laughs> is just brilliant because he said so much I think it was like a half a minute, just him sitting there, said so much in that last few moments uh, without saying one word at all that, that, that sold me on it. I was, uh, 
I, I was satisfied. And that's a big thing about final episodes. You know, you got to be satisfied. I'm like lost. <laughs> <laughs> Who's, uh, whose books do you get excited to read? Uh, lately it's been T. Jefferson Parker. Um, anytime Vicki Hendricks has a book out, I'm really excited. And of course, my friends, I'm always excited to see what Victor Gishler and Sean Doolittle come up with because I get to read those first before everyone else. <laughs> um, I I always end up get being roped in by James Lee Burke, who's a big influence on me in spite of all my efforts to not have him be an influence on me. Um, he uh, He's one I always get almost immediately and read, you know, like the first week it's out. Even when I'm frustrated at him repeating some things. And there's like the James Liebert drinking game, I think, where every time, you know, Dave tells someone to get the mashed potatoes out of their mouth, you take a drink and, you know, you're drunk by the end of chapter seven. So um, it, it's this sort of repetition. And yet I'm still drawn into it and I still care about it. Um, so I get excited by uh, those authors. There's just so many. It, it's kind of a trick now because you have so many friends and they do the same thing I do, which is they listen to interviews or read interviews with their friends and see if they're mentioned or not. And, you know, so it's sort of a nasty thing to name anything anymore because you just know someone's out there saying, why did he say me? But, uh, you know, that's that's the stuff that gets me excited uh, is, is, is always surprising. You know, I didn't expect to be as blown away by Beat the Reaper as I was. You know, that's just an incredible book, um, which I, you know, heard about it and said, ah, I'm not going to like it. And then as soon as I read it, I loved it. So I like to be surprised. I was hoping you could maybe give us a suggestion of a non-bestseller author to keep an eye out for uh, maybe something we could do on a future episode. Oh, <laughs> Oh, we talk boy. about being put on the spot and having to mention 45 <laughs> people. We're just looking for one. <laughs> yeah. Let me look at, let me look at my uh, Kindle here. <laughs> I actually have the Kindle right here. When you say non-bestseller, I mean, it makes me think immediately of people like John Rector and Dave White, who I'll hope you'll have on the show anyway. But as far as sort of bubbling under the surface, I mean, well, you have to get Frank Bell on. You have to. The guy's got this amazing collection coming out from um, FSG in, I guess, September that people are raving about. He's getting blurbs. He's making, you know, this is a guy I originally published in Plots with Guns and had no idea, you know, what I was doing. I said, this story, I have to have this story. I worked with him on it, edited it. But in the end, it just won out. I said, I have to have Frank Bill's story. And now the guy is getting blurbs from Woodrow and Tom Franklin, you know. I mean, for our first collection you have to you know pay attention to him uh, matthew mcbride whose first novel just came out on an e-publisher notra in a blender you gotta you know you know check into this guy um and a couple more simon logan has a book called catch you from the punk band that really is some great great stuff i think you ought to look into him um and there's tons of others, but, you know, I'm just going to stop there and say that's that's a good start. <laughs> you just mentioned plots with guns, and um, we got totally sidetracked. I had a note on there. What's your vision as, as the publisher for plots with guns? Where would you like to see that go? Like, what's your mission statement for that? Well, I think the, the with the step of me promoting myself to publisher, because uh, I was editor for all these years, and then um, said, you know, I, I have to teach, I have to write my own stuff, I have to do a lot of work, and I love Plots with Guns, but the, but the several days I have to sit down and put it together every couple of months is just exhausting. And so I turned it over to Sean O'Kane, who is just really one of the special noir editors who gets it, and uh, he was with Murderland for a while, and with Out of the Gutter books for a while. He's going to really do some remarkable stuff. Eric Lundy, who did the covers for Yellow Medicine and Hog Dog and um, the ebook versions of them, he's doing all the art for Plots with Guns. And you can already see what we have up on for the spring issue. I turned over to him because I said, I just can't do it. And he turned in something within a week that was incredible. That just did this, put everything I'd ever done on it to shame. So I would like to see it grow 
with new vision and these new people, I'd like to be able to have editors, you know, Sean can have the job as long as he wants, but if he <laughs> steps down, I can put a new editor in there and uh, we can keep rolling. So I want to be the Hugh Hefner of noir magazines <laughs> pretty much. You know? Or, or, just, or just Hugh Hefner. Uh, <laughs> the guy does have some perks, you know. Um, the guy's daughter took over Playboy, you know? I mean, that's who's been running it for the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Um, but... You know, I want to I want to see this thing live on its own. The problem is, I never wanted to to become a business. When it got to the point where it was too big, I kind of took a break the first time. Uh, we can't pay writers; it's a labor of love. I'm paying for the site out of my my pocket, and everybody who works for us is doing it because they love it. And the only thing I can give the writers in return is just pure, honest affection for the work that I want to share with the world and will help them. Um, in whatever way I can find a wider audience. And, you know, with people like Frank Bill and Matt McBride, uh, it's a joy to see them find that. So my, I don't really have it as being, you know, growing. I, I, I don't really want to do lots of print anthologies because I don't think that's necessary. I, I just see Plus with Guns as the best at doing what it does, which is publishing stuff that I like. And now that uh, we have a new editor that uh, these guys like that I'm going to read and say, yeah, I would have published that. So um, it's modest. And at the same time, I want us to be the best at what we do. Yeah, we can sympathize. I keep checking the mail every day for the big fat checks that are supposed to show up from this podcast and they're still not coming. So we can definitely sympathize on <laughs> free books. I mean, yeah. free books you can get. There you go. Free books are very, very cool. Um, speaking of books, um, what do you think will be the next thing we read from Doc Noir? Hopefully, uh, hopefully it will be um, this uh, thriller, All the Young Warriors, but I just don't know exactly the details of when, you know, I can talk about that. Uh, but it's kind of different. Um, it does uh, deal with uh, um, a story that happened over here where we have the largest Somali population in Minnesota and specifically in Minneapolis of Somali immigrants, um, sort of strange place because of all the snow and ice and everything but we have this you know i think 300,000 or something like that and we had a case where 20 or something guys young men disappeared from minneapolis their families couldn't find them and they ended up showing up back in somalia fighting for a terrorist organization over there uh, in this sort of ongoing civil war that's tearing the country apart and i just that story fascinated me because we also have a lot of Somalis living in our small town here in Minnesota. And I said, what if one of those guys was from a smaller town? And um, that set me off on writing All the Young Warriors. So that's what I hope will be next. And then um, I'm working on another Billy Lafitte, which because of ebooks, it's the only reason I can write this is because of ebooks. I had to put it aside before when the publisher kind of, uh, you know, went to the wayside. So now I get to actually um, work on it again. And right now, I mean, I, I, I'm going to pimp this. I don't know why, because I'm not getting any money. But I have a free collection of my early crap um, over at the blog right now. Um, I just took some of the earliest short stories that I had I'd written and published between 1997 and 2005 um, and put it together and just I'm giving it away for Kindle and Nook. So um some of those short stories involve the Holy Rollers. Some of them are crime stories. Some are just uh, literary pieces I wrote while I was in grad school. But uh, just giving it away as a thanks to all the people who are you know, buying these ebooks. Yeah, and as a fan before this podcast and before luring you into to being on the show, I'm very much <laughs> looking forward to it. It's I've got one more thing to read for the podcast, and that's very next on my list. So cool. Um, we want to thank you for spending so much time with us. I'm sorry it's ran much longer than we thought, and I don't want to it's keep you from anything. A uh, lot of fun. I'm really enjoying it. Thank you so much again for coming on. You can catch Anthony Neil Smith on Twitter at Doc Noir, and you can catch him at Herman's Greasy Spoon. Um, anything else you want to plug before you go? My, you should look up my wife's website. Uh, B. B Smith, Smith Stitchery. Yes. At Isn't that creepy how I do that? Yes, that's, that's amazing. Yeah, you know way too much about me. So, uh, uh, She sells handmade purses. Uh, I don't think she has a lot there now because there's like a time limit. But if you're interested in any of the purses or getting a handmade purse, uh, you know, for about 30 bucks, uh, 35 bucks, 
um, you can write me and let me know. Um, but you know, as far as, as other things to pimp, uh, let's just pimp you guys. I, I've been trying to get more, more people to listen to you guys because you're doing really, you know, smart talk about, uh, genre books. And I really think that the more we have of that, the, the better it's going to get. Oh, we really appreciate that. No problem. Thanks again, Anthony Neil Smith for coming to booked. Welcome. Salute. <laughs> It's empty. Salute. Okay, and once more, that's Anthony Neal Smith. Really appreciate him coming on. We got to talk about a number of topics, and it was a very, very enlightening and fun conversation. So uh, really happy we could have him on. Absolutely, yes. Thanks again, Anthony Neal Smith. And um, thank you for being kind enough to provide us with three signed copies of Hog Dogging. We're going to be passing those on to you, the listeners. Um, in addition to giving away three signed copy grand prizes, uh, we're going to include a digital Kindle copy um, for you to read on your Kindle, your PC, or your smartphone. And then 10 Runners Up will also receive a digital Kindle copy for themselves from Booked in support of Anthony and Neil Smith's re-release of Hog Doggin. Yeah, keep an eye out on Facebook and Twitter and uh, bookedpodcast.com. We'll be announcing the contest and we will have a special page on our website, bookedpodcast.com slash contest, which will have all the information about how to enter and all of the fine print as well. And I think that'll just about do it for Booked this week. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Keep reading. We'll take an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. Just like they say in the Bible.